Acts chapter 12 is an awesome passage of Scripture. The Bible is full of guiding principles. The Bible is also full of motivational stories. Not motivational stories in the sense that they are invoking within us any fleshly ambition, but motivational stories that are there to spiritually energize us and to spiritually mobilize us. Acts chapter 12 is one of those passages of Scripture. It's said in the context of mounting persecution against the church. You arrive at verse 1 and you read this right off. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. It opens with Herod vexing certain of the church. There is apparent inability of God's people to do anything to deliver themselves. A great big bully is on the move and God's people are easy targets in this passage of Scripture and they're hard-pressed to do anything about it. If we really are going to grasp what it is that God does in Acts chapter 12, we need to understand the people that are on the page. There are some incredible people on the page here. I want you to know something about Herod the king. A little bit of a historical setting for the infamous family of Herod. Herod the Great reigned for 40 years. He was a horrible man. Herod the Great reigned for 40 years. He was on the throne when Jesus Christ was born. You might remember that he became aware that one was born in Bethlehem who was known as King of the Jews. He then sent men down, wise men, to go find him. When you find out where he is, you come back and tell me so that I can go worship him as well. Of course, they're warned and they go on. Herod then does something that is so detestable and vile and wicked. He sends out an edict to go down and to kill, slaughter every Jewish boy who was two years old and under. He was a ruthless tyrant. He only gave glory to himself. He despised God. Along comes Herod the Great, again, married ten times. He was giving birth to Herod Antipas. Married ten times is hard for me to imagine because I assume that he's a loving, gentle, and gracious husband. I can't think of any worse human on the planet than Herod the Great, but along comes Herod Antipas. He was the immoral drunkard who beheaded John the Baptist. He was also the one whom Jesus Christ stood before while on trial before going back to Pilate. And Luke tells us that he personally mocked Jesus Christ. Herod Agrippa is the one who killed James and imprisoned Peter. He's here in Acts chapter 12. Herod Agrippa's son, Herod Agrippa too, was the one who rejected and scoffed at the Apostle Paul's defense. This was a wretched family. This was the family and this was the man who was in complete control at this point in time. They were God-haters. He was vexing certain of the church, ever the politician. He knew that it pleased the Jews. I want you to understand that vexers of the church still exist. And this entire cosmos, this world system that we are in, belongs to Satan. It is ever working against the cause of Jesus Christ and is ever anti-God. One writer said, Satan's bloodhounds have such an insatiable thirst after the blood of the saints that they can never be satiated with it nor satisfied without it. Understand that you are engaged in spiritual warfare when you enter the work of God. 
Understand that there are vexers of the church at every turn, at every stage, and for every generation. They will never have their thirst satiated. They are always working against God. So was this period of time in Acts chapter 12 with Herod the king set out to make some political plays vexing certain of the church. When we arrive in verse 2, you'll note this, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. That's a pretty brief obituary for one of the twelve apostles. I would assume that James would get a little more coverage than a one-sentence obituary, but the Holy Spirit tells Luke to simply pin, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. For those that knew James, however, that one-sentence obituary would have been enough to bring on tears of grief. The church, which was under grievous persecution, would have been aware that one of the pillars of the church had just been murdered with the sword, dying a martyr's death first to do so. I know one man who certainly would have been grieved in his heart. That would have been his brother John. James and John, James and John, everywhere throughout Scripture, they are linked together. Jesus himself brought he and, and James and Peter into the inner circle. He called them the sons of thunder, apostolic buccaneers. And with one fell swoop from a mad despot, James is beheaded. John is now grieving. The church is further fearing. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about James' trial, but history does. I thought it was interesting that Clement of Alexandria in the early 2nd century wrote that as James walked from the courtroom to the place of execution, the soldier escorting him was so deeply moved after witnessing the trial and James' testimony of faith in Christ before the Roman officials that he confessed Christ as well. As a result, the soldier was led out to be executed right along with James. This act of executing one of the pillars of the church further ingratiated Herod the king with the Jews. This is a man of no moral character. This is a man who despises God and is working against the church. And when he senses that he has pleased the Jews by executing James... He goes on in verse 3, and it says this, He proceeded further to take Peter also. And then this little parenthetical statement. Then were the days of unleavened bread. Make no mistake about it, Peter is headed for the same end as James. There's going to be a mock trial. It's going to be a mockery. And the Jews, the religious Jews, are going to love it as their bloodlust is now heightened, fighting against the church of Jesus Christ. You need to understand that the sword was used on James because that was what you did to an apostate. And the Jews were excited and they were waiting with bated breath for Peter, that loud mouth who had been in and out of the temple courtyard and on Solomon's porch proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to finally get what was coming to him so that he would finally be silenced. But that little parenthetical statement that Luke puts in there is of utmost importance because you can't kill anybody during the days of unleavened bread. There's a little bit of a respite there going on for Peter. Jesus of Nazareth is nowhere to be seen. 
He has ascended and he is not around. James has been beheaded. Peter is imprisoned. The church would be dead soon. The church which Jesus had proclaimed the gates of hell would not prevail over is now near its end and Herod can sense it. The beleaguered group of believers at Jerusalem are overwhelmed. They are helpless. In verse 4, the Bible tells us, And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison, that is Peter, and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. The Bible is full of details. Luke has these details in this verse for us on purpose. He wants for us to grasp the hopelessness of the situation. He wants us to enter into the emotion of the moment. Herod the king, this vile hater of God, is entrenched in leadership. James, the beloved apostle, has been executed. Peter, the pillar, one of the leaders in the church, has been imprisoned. And this ragtag group of misfit believers is utterly and completely helpless. And Jesus isn't coming anytime soon physically to help them or avail them in any way. When he is in prison, he's delivered to four quaternions of soldiers. That's not normal treatment. And I believe that when Peter went in, he thought it was the end. I don't think Peter imagined that he would ever walk the streets of Jerusalem again. I don't know if he ever imagined that he would minister to the people in the church that was there. You see, the Bible tells us that earlier Jesus had a conversation with Peter. John records it this way. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young... Thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thine hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, Jesus, signifying by what death he, Peter, should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Jesus has just said to Peter, Peter, the day is going to come where you're going to stretch out your hands. Someone is going to take you where you do not want to go, leading you about to kill you. Peter, following me means death. I am struck by the fact that after delivering that prophecy to Peter, Jesus says to him, follow me. And what is more striking is Peter does. I read on. In 2 Peter 1.14, that Peter knew this day would eventually come. He said, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Peter served every day the Lord Jesus Christ with the awareness that it was for his life. He served every day with the awareness that his end would be bloody. It strikes me that he served Jesus anyway, but trying to enter in to Acts chapter 12, I must imagine that having had that conversation with Jesus, Peter thinks this is it. He's now been bound, delivered to four quaternions of soldiers. He's in chains. He is imprisoned. I believe he thought this was it. Herod is riding high and the church is struggling low. I want you to look at verse 5, and I want you, if you're in the habit of simply marking in your Bible, to mark two words on which this entire narrative hinges. They're the two words right in the middle, but prayer. Peter, therefore, was kept 
in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. The apparent weakness of the church is underlined by the reality that all they could do was pray. But prayer was made without ceasing. The Holy Spirit, through Luke, doesn't want us to miss the contrast. Peter is in trouble and Jesus isn't here, but the church is interceding. I want you to think about what we've established. Peter is in prison. Zero hour is at hand. Passover is complete. Herod can continue his bloodshed, but the church is in prayer. Herod isn't the power on this scene. He's merely a pawn. Herod thinks that he's bigger than the church, but he doesn't know the church. Herod thinks he's more powerful than God, but he doesn't know God. Herod didn't kill James because God was caught off guard and overpowered. James was killed because God wanted him home. Prayer was made without ceasing. I would ask you this. Does anything look more ridiculous to an oppressor than a ragtag group of harried believers coming together and merely offering up prayer? That is what the church was doing. That's what they gathered around to do. Sometimes we have this in our minds. Don't just stand there. Do something. But in Scripture, we have this understanding. It is this. Don't just do something, stand there and pray. Be still and know that I am God. I would say it this way, and I mean no disrespect to them. The early church was just dumb enough to believe that prayer would work. The early church, here in Acts chapter 12, completely overwhelmed by the presence of Herod and his family and the Roman government, the seeming absence of Jesus Christ, the persecution of the church, the death of James, and the imprisonment of Peter, they were just weak enough in this moment to pray. Spurgeon said this, some would have said, what can prayer do? But the early church was not afflicted with such skepticism. One of the things that ails our generation of ministry is we are a generation of skeptics. We just don't believe that God still wants to do something great now. We limit God and we pray prayers that are full of skepticism. If I went around the room and asked you, everybody in this room theologically would say, I believe God, but you are practically an atheist. And by saying practically you're an atheist, I don't mean that you are almost an atheist. I mean in practice you are an atheist. In practice you act as though God is completely impotent. In practice you act as though God is already done. You act as though He has already written the end of the book and closed it up and His work is finished in this place and in this day and you couldn't be further from the truth. Doesn't matter what our eyes tell us. It doesn't matter what the newspapers would have told us. The church was interceding in prayer. They were agonizing in prayer, implied in the language as they were stretched out with their arms in prayer. Then the scene shifts in verse 6 from the prayer meeting at the church into the prison. And the Bible says this And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with chains, 
And the keepers before the door kept the prison. Sometimes we're so familiar with Scripture that we are not amazed by the simple understanding that Peter was sleeping, completely at rest in Jesus. Know that at this point in time, his mindset is such that this is the end. There isn't going to be any more ministry for me. As Peter is in the prison, he's sleeping and there's no martyr complex in him, which I have mastered the art of martyrdom. I throw extravagant pity parties for myself. And so do you. I see it on your face. Some of you are having one now. Get over it. You're in chapel and I'm not done yet. <laughs> extravagant pity parties. There was no moaning and groaning from Peter. I can't stand that because I would have complained about everything. I would have wanted everyone in the whole wide world to know that I had it harder than they did. I would want all of them to come to grips with the fact that serving Jesus has cost me everything. Just look at me. I would have held my hands up multiple times just to make the chains make noise. He's in between two Roman soldiers who mean business. This prisoner and his being guarded literally means their life is at stake. And Peter is so calm that he is asleep. I think of the Roman guards who must have been amazed at the fact that this man sleeps. Now here's something you have to put together within Scripture. Peter didn't put jammies on. Peter just took his clothes off to go to sleep. Which means there's some Roman guards there and the cloak comes off and the tunic comes off and the sandals come off and Peter's ready to go to sleep. We'll establish that here in just a moment. They're looking at this man who is due to be murdered in mere hours and he's asleep. I imagine that Peter shared Christ with his captors, prayed aloud and prayed as long as he could and then fell asleep resting in Jesus. Don't miss the fact that we're told there were four quaternions of soldiers, squads with four soldiers each. There's 16 of them. Three-hour shifts they would have worked. Always four soldiers guarding Peter. They would have taken their jobs like their life depended on it. Remember the Philippian jailer. He was going to kill himself when he thought the prisoners had escaped because that's what would have happened to him. The guards at the tomb of Jesus had to be protected by the Sanhedrin for their lives. These men, and we see it in chapter 12, will lose their lives. We've gone from the prayer meeting where the church is back into the prison where Peter is. And I want you to notice verse 7. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him. And a light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise, up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands, and the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, and bind on thy sandals. So he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. At this point, again, I'm struck by the details that the Holy Spirit inspires Luke to give us. Why are we told that Peter is getting dressed? One, it indicates his peaceful mind state that he was just asleep between the guards. But there has to be more than that. 
Peter, at this point in time, believes that he's seeing a vision. He does not grasp that this is reality. I do not know what happened to the Roman guards. I don't know if they were comatose. I don't know if they were wide awake. I don't understand it, but God doesn't have to explain it. I know that Peter gets up and the angel has to tell him, like a teenage child or a college student perhaps, how to get dressed first thing in the morning. Peter, get up. Put your sandals on. No, no, no. Wrong foot. Put your sandals on. Get your, get, get your clothes on. Gird, gird yourself up. Put your coat on. Get your cloak. Put your cloak about thee. And for whatever reason, I can see Peter in my mind's eye with whatever hair he had left a little crazy. Sandals not exactly how they should be on his feet. His cloak loosely around him as he imagines that he's simply having a vision. The angel has come in and woke him up. And I think, why If God can take chains off his arms, can he put clothes on Peter? Several commentators that I read said this, make the point that when God performs a miracle, he won't do what the person can do. Think about it. Why not just automatically dress Peter? Why didn't Jesus do it? Because Peter can dress Peter. But what Peter can't do is take off his chains. Only God can do that. But Peter can put on his sandals. We're co-laborers with God. But when he does something miraculous, the only part of the story that we get to take credit for is that we got dressed for it. I put on my shoes right, and I followed out behind him. By the time we get to verse 10, the Bible says, when they were past the first and the second ward, they came unto the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. Do you get the picture in your mind? The chains fall off of Peter, but they stay on the guards. Peter and an angel with a bright light in the room are having a conversation about Peter getting dressed. The angel tells Peter to follow him. Out they go, past the guards at the door, past the iron gate, which opens unto them, and the Greek is automatos. That doesn't take a real rocket scientist to understand what happened. Of his own accord, the door opens up. Peter finds himself now standing out in the streets of Jerusalem. The angel stays with him one street, and then the angel is gone, and Peter is standing there. And I imagine if he was groggy this whole time, at this moment he's now rubbing his wrists. He comes to his senses. He is now aware this is not a vision and this is not a dream. He is fully awake and his adrenaline is rushing. And I love what Luke says in chapter 12, verse 12. And when he had considered the thing, when he came to his senses, when he had fully accepted and understood what had just happened to him, notice what Peter does. He came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And in verse 13, I I begin to see humor in the account. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. 
And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. They said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then said they, It is his angel. Peter comes to his senses. Peter is, is beelining it now to get to John Mark's house. When Peter gets to the house, he knocks on the door. Rhoda, who was the little damsel who worked inside of the house, went to the gate. Peter is at the gate frantically saying, open the door, open the door, open the door, open the door. I need in, open the door. Rhoda, it's me, Peter, open the door. Rhoda is so pumped that Peter is there that she turns and she runs back into the prayer meeting and says, guys, Peter's at the door, and they say to her, you're nuts, Rhoda. Can't be Peter. He's in prison. I think of the conversation like this. He's here. Who is? Peter. He's standing outside the gate. You're crazy. I am not. I heard his voice in the language she constantly affirmed implies that she was nagging. Like a preteen girl leaning on them and nagging. He's here. It's Peter. He's here. It's Peter. He's here. It's Peter. They come back and say, listen, you're hearing things. Don't you realize we're in the middle of a prayer meeting here? Now let's see where were we. Lord, we beg you, please deliver our beloved apostle Peter from prison. Lord, would you please see it fit? If you could in your will and your infinite goodness to deliver our beloved Apostle Peter from prison, we would be so glad. We're pretty sure you won't do it. And so we're just going to keep praying and making hand motions and telling people that has been answered to zip it. You know what I love? Their faith amazes me. Here's what they say. Rhoda, you're crazy. Stop. You got into the hors d'oeuvres we had out earlier. Something's wrong. You need to go to bed. Lord, please deliver our beloved apostle Peter from prison. Guys, it's him. He's at the door. <laughs> Listen, Rhoda, it's probably his angel, but it's not Peter. Now, if that doesn't smack you in the face, I don't know what will. They had enough faith to think, okay, we've done the math. His guardian angel's at the door, but not Peter. How dumb can we be? How often do we try to explain away the things that God is doing? It's probably his angel at the door, but certainly it's not him. It's encouraging to me to know that people who hung around the apostles, people who hung around the Lord hadn't figured out their faith either. Listen, they were praying, but they were convinced that they knew what God would or wouldn't do. And that's just like us. We know what God might do if He wanted to, but we're also convinced that He will not do it. We know what He could do if He wanted to, but we really don't pray that way. Here they are in a prayer meeting, interceding with arms outstretched, agonizing for the release of Peter. Peter's released, and they go on praying because they just can't imagine that God would actually answer what they were praying for. They think the little girl is crazy in the head and that perhaps she's just interacted with his guardian angel and Peter continues to knock at the door. Verse 16, he continued knocking and when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. 
But he beckoning unto them with the hand, trying to silence them because he's imagining that there are Roman guards chasing him through the streets. He's quieting them down with his hands. He gets them to hold their peace and he tells them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And then he said, go show these things unto James, the other James, and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place, which is exactly what I would have done. Smart move, Peter. Get out of Jerusalem. They're coming for your life. He departed and went into another place. But I want you to understand something. This ragtag group of weak nobodies possessed greater power than Herod. There were some people whose lives were changed on that night because they were reacquainted with the true power and the true provision for the church. Were they embattled? Yes. Did James come back? No. Does God still perform miracles? Yep. To put a nice little bow on this power struggle, jump down to verse 21. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. That is an intriguing study. Go and figure out he was eaten up of worms. It is disgusting. It's vile. It was visible. It happened in front of a lot of people. Josephus tells us about this day. He said on a festival day, Herod presented himself in the theater in Caesarea to make a speech dressed in a beautiful robe woven of silver. I love this. He said, as he moved in the sun, the brilliant flashing at times blinded the people. You have to imagine Herod the king. This murderous, God-hating wretch of a human, married ten times, and, and, and now he's given birth to all these kids. These kids are as wicked and as vile. Now here's Herod Agrippa I standing out in Caesarea, and he's wearing a sequined gown. That's what I have pictured in my mind. It's ill-fitting because you have to picture him as slovenly and overweight and disheveled as I do. But he's in his sequined gown. He stands out in the sun and Josephus says he began to make an oration because they had gotten to Blastus and Blastus had gotten them in front of him and he's giving his speech. And as he's giving his speech, they all begin to shout out, oh, this can't be the voice of a man. This has to be the voice of God. And the Bible tells us quite simply that an angel came and smote him. And when the angel smote him, he dropped dead and he was eaten up of worms. There is beautiful poetry in the scripture. Because the word smote in verse 23, where the angel came and smote Herod, is the exact same word for smote in verse 7, where the angel came and woke Peter up. I happen to believe, and this is my opinion, that it was the same angel just with a different assignment. Go wake Peter up. Knock him on the side. Hey, I've had enough of Herod. Go down knock him on the side. And let's see him eaten up of worms. You need to understand something. God is in complete control all the time. God is unstoppable. His word is unconquerable. 
And when Herod the king took Peter and threw him in prison and put four quaternions of soldiers around him, God didn't care one bit about how many soldiers were there to keep him in place. I want you to know that God wasn't caught off guard when James was beheaded. It was time for James to go home. I need you to realize that the church didn't have to do some big and grandiose thing to get this incredible work of God done. They prayed. And they prayed believing somewhat because we saw how faulty their faith was, but their lives were changed when Peter stood at the door and he told them what happened. And then just within days, the same angel comes, smites Herod on the side, and Herod dies. And I want you to listen to verse 24 because it answers a nagging question. But the word of God grew and multiplied. God doesn't lose. We have been fed the idea that we're on the fringe. We have bought into the skepticism that now pervades our spiritual world. We just imagine that now more than co-laborers utterly dependent on the power of God, God has kind of enlarged our share in that work and he now is a little bit more dependent on us. We're easily discouraged and we're easily put off and we're too quickly fatigued because we are skeptics who doubt God. We need to come back to the place where we understand it doesn't matter who's on the throne and it doesn't matter who's in control. It doesn't matter what the optics of the moment of the hour of the day tell us. God has not yet relented. It's way too early for the world to celebrate because God's work is still ongoing. Jesus may have been ascended. James may have been beheaded. Peter may have been imprisoned, but God was still in control. Herod is not the power. Herod is merely a pawn. And the church which was interceding, this group of ragtag misfits within the population of Jerusalem actually had the power to make a greater difference in this world than Herod the king did, than the religious Jews of the Sanhedrin did. One wrote, the early church had no such thing as political cloud or friends in high places to pull strings. Instead, they went to the highest throne of all the throne of grace. I would venture to say that you're putting in prayer time, but I believe that your prayer along with mine is not near what it should be in and for the work of God. God is unstoppable. I don't care what parameters you set. God's work can go on. God's word is unconquerable. God's work will go on. I want you to understand something. We're not adrift in the midst of some raging sea holding on to some slim spar. We are founded on the bedrock of ages. We win. They lose. We have the truth. Because we have the Holy Spirit and the power of God, we are unstoppable forces. We are unconquerable because we have the Word of God. And yet far too often, we are impotent, we are apathetic, we are passive, we are weak, and our efforts are futile. And I wonder, when was the last time 
You prayed believing that God could and that God would. My encouragement to you would be, listen, put your sandals on, put your cloak around you, and ask God to do what only He can do. But be busy doing what you can do. Listen, in the end, we win. You win. I win. There are plenty of seasons in life where I feel as though I'm losing. But there's nothing greater than knowing I serve the God of the impossible, who is unstoppable and who is unconquerable. I just wonder, do we actually believe it?